0: Hi John, it's BJ from the Arcane list I enjoyed the Four uh, E Cosmology episode. I agree that was one of the strong points of Fourth Edition.
1: Welcome back to the Rad Dice Diaries. I'm your host, John, and before the music there we heard from bj of the arcane alienist talking about how much he liked the cosmology the world axis cosmology in fourth edition as per my previous episode on the subject i'm a pretty big fan of it too but bj's got a little bit more to say so let's let him crack on with that
0: i've continued to use it even in uh, fifth edition and other games at times i wish they had kind of kept that if they were going to have to have a default cosmology for fifth edition I kind of wish they stuck with that. They do describe it in DM's guide as an alternative to the Great Wheel. Never been a fan of the Great Wheel. I think it's very convoluted and complex and only serves to um, help bring about more arguments and debates about alignment because now it sort of makes alignment a real thing because of the cosmology and the DM has to police everybody about whether they're playing their alignments correctly uh, for certain classes. So I, I don't like get into that. I, I think that like you had said because it's a little more nebulous and a little less well defined um it's a little more freeform I also thought it was kind of neat you could almost see it as a medieval view of an actual physical galaxy you know with, with you know we've got a is the abyss the abyss or is it a black hole is it a prime material a material plane or is it just a planet and the astral sea is that an astral sea or is that just how, how they experience space because they don't have another reference point so I really enjoyed um cosmology and i'm glad to hear someone else there is a fan of it so great episode keep it up
1: thanks very much for the call in bj glad you enjoyed the episode yeah i'm a big fan of the fourth edition world access cosmology as you probably guessed i hadn't considered i've got to admit the fact that it could be a sort of medieval and in inverted commas sort of view of how space and cosmology actually works that's really interesting i think it's something i have to sort of sit down and have a think about at the start of the campaign you know when i was sort of like pondering that stuff but i could really see that being interesting if you wanted to do a slightly more sort of medieval led game so thank you very much for that suggestion and next up we have a call from randy one of the dynamic duo behind the podcast biggest geekers so go ahead randy
0: hey john this is randy um can't remember if i got my message through on inspiration on the thieves but uh, i really appreciate the thieves episode but kind of calling for a different thing
1: um oh sounds a little bit ominous what's on your mind dude just wanted to let you know that you've
0: inspired joe and i to do kind of a, a monster series not unlike you and hannah i think we're going to focus on purely dnd monsters too and we don't mean to step on your toes and um not trying to do uh competitive thing here and just kind of thought it was pretty cool. So we're going to kind of rank the top 10 D&D monsters and have a few other things probably. Uh, We're hoping for kind of 11 episodes out of this but maybe not in a row. So anyway, uh, that's the idea and I hope it's cool. Uh, You guys take care. Keep up the good work. Bye
1: cheers dude that is absolutely cool and in fact myself and uh, hannah since like i say i'm recording this a bit after the messages were sent myself and hannah actually left the biggest geekers a, a voice mail message saying how much we love the idea and we were glad that we'd sort of inspired them but like i said the more the merrier as far as i'm concerned it's one of the things i like about osr gaming and D&D. is like you've got a lot of different people all coming in with like different perspectives and ideas and that results in ideas and things that i might not have considered you know when i was looking at things and in fact i think me and hannah are going to in a sort of inspiration section we're going to take a bit of inspiration from you guys because we would not considered like ranking our top 10 favorite monsters but i think that's something like we might do now do it like separately like myself and hannah just to see like what differences there are in our sort of favorite monsters and what different types of monsters we go for so i really can't wait to hear what you guys are going to put out Thank you very much Uh, We're we're really glad that we've inspired you for this And we look forward to seeing what you put out In the future And next up we have a voicemail From Goblins Henchman About point crawls
2: Hi John, Goblins Henchman here Um, Just listened to your latest episode heard Joe ring in And he reminded me that I wanted to say something About point crawls Um, Yeah I think point crawls are really valuable I've experimented with them a little bit um, In particular on my my uh, procedural adventure carapace, um, and I, I did a play test of that recently, in fact two, and I, I was feeling a bit pressured because I was doing it for people I didn't know, so I kind of used a kind of sort of almost like a VTT, well just basically word with some tokens, I just dragged the tokens around just so I could keep track of them, but I, I really found that kind of even that, that intrusion, because I normally do theatre the mind, I found it, it really really fix things in a way that i didn't like you know because there's only so much you can do with a 2d top down representation that you can't do in your mind and i found it was more heads down play rather than heads up play you know you know people looking at the tokens not thinking about you know what's what's happening to them
1: yeah i mean thank you very much for that call goblin's henchman i've really been loving the point crawls recently And I'm sort of slowly working out the the best way of using them for our group in the Smoke and Snow OSE campaign that I'm running at the moment. And in fact, the most recent session we did as of time of recording, I pretty much had, like, they're in sort of like a mega dungeon, sort of underdarky sort of place at the minute. And I basically laid out the big map for that. And then I just had a single party token. We used it to represent generally where they were. There wasn't really much detail on the map, aside from showing sort of like, the, the spaces and their relative size and position to each other, and the rest of it was done by description. There was a couple of little areas where we went on a slightly more detailed map that I had done, but the vast majority of it because we didn't want to be crawling around you know each five foot square on this huge mega dungeon so we tracked it in a more sort of abstract point crawl style and that seemed to work really well it was all very simple so we're just using owlbear rodeo which is a very simple vtt we had a spreadsheet in google drive with all of the character sheets on and we just used the dice roller in owlbear rodeo and that was pretty much it and the players all seemed to respond really well to that and seemed to quite enjoy enjoy it rather than it being like a really long sort of slow slog through this massive mega dungeon so it's definitely something i'm going to look towards using in the future and i do think you're right as i've said recently that having too many bells and whistles can distract a little bit and become an end unto themselves so thank you very much for the call it's greatly appreciated and next up we've got a few calls from Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. But first of all, he wants to say something about skill systems.
3: Hey John, just want to say that I still recommend Scarlet Heroes and that skill system. I actually have Worlds Without Number. I've got the um, the deluxe book from Kickstarter, the, the printed book, but I haven't opened it, so I don't know what's in it. I don't know if it's the same skill system or not. I like what the Pink Phantom proposed, though, because that way when your Thief gets in the, and they have a two and six chance or three and six chance, now they have a two or three, two or six, three and six on two dice or maybe three dice. And, and I and I think that's an interesting. Like I say, I don't know exactly the math numbers, but I, I think it is interesting and definitely worth exploring and maybe building into a, a small subsystem, like you say. So that was a great contribution
1: yeah i think pink phantom's idea was really interesting although it, like like say i'm not really up with the maths myself i have to sit down and sort of work it out or let someone who's far better at maths than me work it out as for worlds without number it's my understanding that it pretty much uses the same skill system as stars without number i have had a flick through it uh but um uh, i'm not really good at retaining information on a quick flick through so i really need to go through it again and it's definitely a game i might look to run at some point in the future which would entail me reading into it in more detail but thank you very much for the call however before we go on with more of jason's calls that cheeky chappy goblins henchman has nipped back in where he wants to talk about the city book i was discussing in a previous episode
2: hi john just goblin's henchman here just uh not Nothing particularly fantastic to say, but I've also got that McKidna's City Book. I think I've got a second edition one. Um, I think I bought it at the time because I was interested in uh, maybe making a hex about exploring a city. And I thought, wow, there's a lot of stuff in here. But I think you're right. There's so much stuff that it's almost to the point where you, you wouldn't be able to use it on the fly very easily unless you're really familiar with it.
1: Yeah, much as I love the City Book Goblins Henchmen, I think you're absolutely right. I personally wouldn't be able to use it on the fly. I tend to use it between sessions, you know, when I'm like planning out new settlements and I'm firming up some of the details and stuff like that. I think there's a few tables I could pull from if I wanted a quick sort of like, oh, you know, what encounter have they had on the fly? But the actual sort of city planning stuff, I think I'd sort of mainly keep that for my between-session prep.
2: Um, And as for that uh, mini manual of the planes you know the sort of tiny ad and d books i actually bizarrely have that also um i think on g i remember that some guy came out and said I've, he managed to collect the full set including like the box set there's like a box set for the basic or something and i had a quick look on ebay and these things are certainly when i looked back then they were going for like 200 300 quid 800 quid you know crazy money so uh you know your manual of planes maybe worth some coin. I should probably look myself, but uh, yeah, there you go. Fine.
1: Thanks very much for the heads up about that Goblin henchman Yeah, I've got to admit, um the particularly with my sort of eyesight now, the the mini sort of uh d books they did aren't really of a great deal of practical use to me i mean i've only got that one because my wife bought it for me years ago bless her as a sort of like novelty item and i later on went to acquire the the full size sort of orange spine version and yeah, it's, it's a cool little novelty but like you say people are paying silly money for it i expect it's mainly because there's probably not many of them survive because they're not exactly hard wearing and there's that sort of novelty slash nostalgia factor and who knows i might sort of pass mine on or sell it at some point in the future but it's got a little bit of sentimental value to me because like i say, my wife bought it for me so i'll probably keep hold of it and next up we have a couple of calls from jason at nerds rpg variety cast again and this time it's about meeples or using the tokens in games hey
3: john jason here just want to say on your meeple episode yeah i've used substitute counters for a long long time I don't play in war game tournaments or things like that, but i you know, played war games of friends or board games of friends or, you know, something like the games workshop, board games and skirmish games. You have to put the miniatures together and I'm lazy. So we'll just use other things, miniatures from other games or, you know, coins or poker chips or whatever to represent the pieces. So I, I don't mind substituting things. I, I think a, just as simple and easy and no big deal. Um, so, yeah. No, nope, but definitely I'd, I, I would I would never consider having to buy all the miniatures for a role-playing game. But I guess if you're going to a convention or something like that, you want it to look good. The other option, though, it's been a long time since so I've gone somewhere. I needed a lot of nice looking miniatures convention or something. I'll either borrow the miniatures. I've done that before when I ran a, a game a modern warfare skirmish game i borrowed a bunch of miniatures from somebody to use the convention or i'll print up either tri-folds or bi-folds on my own printer where you can print like front and back and you'll have to put some research into finding the right pictures and all but i did a ghostbusters game where i printed you know just got pictures offline and, and printed up my own foldy you know foldies paper folded figures and um that works fine too it's a little extra work but that looks pretty good but just playing at home with friends yeah I'll just use poker chips and things like that you know make um what do you call them um pogs and and do that because that works just well so take care
1: all great suggestions there jason thank you very much yeah i've got to admit i forgot to mention poker chips in my original episode but i have used those before another thing i have used is like the pieces from drafts or checkers and you know i've sort of printed out like little round like tokens with like an orc face and a goblin face and stuff like that and then i've just like blue tacked them onto the checkers pieces and that works equally well or as you say you can get numerous different types and colors of poker chips which you can use to represent different things on the tabletop and i think they work really well i mean i think poker chips might be a little bit big for the standard sort of like inch square grid but i'm sure you can probably get smaller poker chips Or, you know, you can just sort of like not worry about it too much, depending on what game you're running. But yeah, I think tokens can work really well, particularly if you've got limited storage space. You're having to transport a lot of stuff for a convention. And while miniatures do look cool at conventions, I mean, I've gone to a convention up in Glasgow and we laid out full like Dwarven Forge 3D scenery in a dungeon. We had all miniatures and all stuff like that and it was really great, looked great on the tabletop, but it was a pain in the butt to transport, and it was an awful lot of effort to set up. Whereas if you want to do a quick game, you want something with a little bit more minimal fuss, that counts in tokens all the way as far as I'm concerned, if you even need to use physical representations. But tell me, Jason, what do you think about the concept of evil in D&D?
3: To be honest, eh, I'm not really that bothered. Like in AD&D first edition, some classes require you to be evil to be that class, and you may want those classes in the game, and that's okay, as long as the players want to be a team player and, like you say, work with a group. Then it's not that you know, not just screw everybody. It, it's not a big deal. I've played cat a lot of times in the three-step alignment. I'll play chaotic characters, but they're not so much evil as selfish, and that doesn't. It's not in their self-interest to screw the party over. So they're not necessarily going to do that, but they they may not, you you know, help that damsel distress unless they think it's going to help them, right? So it it just depends. But I, I think if you have mature players, it's not a problem. And if you have a player that abused it, then that, you know, is a pretty good sign. You don't want that player in your game. So take care.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Jason. If you've got a a good player, ironically, who's playing an evil character, but they still sort of keep in mind that it's a group game and everyone's there to enjoy it and they're not screwing over the party left, right and centre, then you can quite happily have a sort of slightly more self-serving slash evil character in the group without it causing too many problems. And as you say, if you do get someone who is sort of taking it to ridiculous extremes, then... If you've got a campaign world where there are consequences for actions then there are going to be consequences for whatever shenanigans they're getting up to with regards to the original sort of bx3 step alignment you know lawful neutral chaotic we've got my friend dave playing a chaotic thief quentin in my smoke and snow old school essentials campaign at the moment and he's more focused on sort of getting power for himself and using it to spread chaos but he still works with the party he's still a great asset to them while adventuring and that's working really well so far and we've had no problems with that not that i thought we would because i've known dave for a number of years i know he can play these sort of characters who walk the the tight rope between good and evil and what they can get away with and what they can't get away with, and I know he's very good at that. So as you say, I think it all comes down to a sort of level of trust between the GM and the player who wants to play the evil character. But it really depends on your specific game, your group, and stuff like that. And finally, to round things off, we have another call from Jason, where he's talking about our recent zombie episode. Go ahead, Jason.
3: Hey John, Jason here. I... You know, I got sick of zombie movies maybe 20 years ago or so.
1: Yeah, I can certainly understand that, dude. There was a period of time where, like, it seemed like a zombie movie was coming out every other week. And some of them weren't that great, to be perfectly honest. And they sort of, in my view, missed the mark about what makes zombies so terrifying. But so I can sort of definitely understand how your sort of enthusiasm for it might have waned. And that's why in the episode I did, I was focusing more on sort of. Delving back into the sort of like the origins of them in like the original films and stuff like that, and the original fiction, rather than like the profusion of sort of what I consider like lesser media that came out in more modern times. Although there are still some good modern zombie movies that put an interesting twist on it. But yeah, like you say, you definitely have to like curate your sort of research when it comes to things like this.
3: Zombies can be interesting. I wouldn't overuse them in a game, at least not. Romero style zombies, you know, and there's definitely a difference between a a zombie raised by magic and a Romero style zombie, right? But if you're going to do the Romero style, I'm also sick of funnels in DCC. I think a funnel in DCC is great, one-time thing. You're starting a long campaign you want to start a funnel, that's great. But I don't want to play a lot of funnels in DCC because you don't get to play with the cool bits and bobs of the character classes when you're playing the funnel. But A zombie game, a situation where zombie hordes are coming, is a great time to do DCC Funnel, because then you can have a lot of character death. So, I don't know. There's something to think about.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mention Funnels, Jason. As I was saying in our previous voicemail episode, I've not really had a great deal of experience with Dungeon Crawl Classics, but it's another one on my list of potential games to run, and I've got the thick old book for it. And yeah, the, the funnel concept is something I'm not really that familiar with, but I see people sort of doing like one-shots of it, and I'm not sure if I'd like to play in a lot of them myself as like one-shots, but I can see how as the first sort of bit of a, a long-running campaign, which is how the book seems to be selling it from what I've read, I could see how it could be interesting, and yeah, a sort of a zombie outbreak scenario where you know you're you're the survivors in a village that's been encircled by the undead hordes. I think that could be really cool. And it's something I might keep on the back burner for when and if I do get round to running a DCC game so that's it for this episode it just remains for me to thank my wonderful callers it's very much appreciated we love getting your voicemails and if you'd like to leave us a message and perhaps be featured in a future episode like this then you can do so in a few different ways you can leave us a voicemail message using speakpipe or anchor link in the description down below or you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com so until we see you again Take care, stay safe, and whatever you're playing, have fun